I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Imagine after a long career, you get crowned queen of reggae. But that kind of makes sense when you're talking about Marcia Griffiths. Marcia is part of bringing reggae from a small musical movement in Jamaica to a worldwide musical force. And she came to our studio to talk about it, how her career began when she won a talent show, the time she was on tour with Bob Marley and she thought they would be killed, how she's been this important artist but has never been paid fairly, and how she inspired maybe the biggest wedding dance ever. Marcia Griffiths coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Let's uh, start with a little bit of music. There's a land that I have heard about so far across the sea. It's beautiful. From 1978, that is Marcia Griffiths and Dreamland. If you don't know Marcia Griffiths, let me give you the Coles notes. She's known as the queen of reggae. Here's why. She started singing in Jamaica in the early 1960s. I shall tell you about how she got discovered at a talent show. From there, she gets signed to the legendary reggae label Studio One, which was owned by a guy named Cox and Dodd. That comes up in our chat. Studio One was the home of like Bob Marley and the Wailers and Toots and the Maytals and Lee Scratch Perry. Marcia goes on to have some big hits in the 70s as Bob and Marcia, her duo with the reggae great Bob Andy. She was also one of the I-3s, Bob Marley's backup singers, and she tells some incredible stories about touring with Bob. So this October, Marcia's legacy is being honored with the Order of Jamaica. She was in town, as I mentioned, not that long ago, doing a gig at the Canadian National Exhibition in Toronto. She dropped in for a chat about her incredible career. We were very grateful to have this time with the queen of reggae, Marcia Griffiths. How are you? I am giving thanks. I'm wonderful. And I must say, I'm truly blessed. Congrats on the Order of Jamaica. Thank you. How does that feel? It's really a wonderful feeling to be recognized for your works over the years. And usually, we in Jamaica, we say that we see this bestowed. This order is usually bestowed when someone has passed Uh or they're very sick. Uh So I'm thankful that I'm alive and healthy. How do you find out? I just got a phone call to say that uh, they're honoring me. They're bestowing the order of Jamaica to me. And I said, well, I'm thankful, you know, and I'm glad I'm alive. Exactly what I just said to you. I said to them. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Now, when you were a kid, here's what I'm curious about this. When you were a kid. What kind, of, what kind of music was playing around the house? What were you listening to? We were influenced by American music. On the radio, right? When I was a kid, on the radio, yeah. Yeah. All we heard was American music. We, of course, we heard our own Jamaican music, but we were influenced by American music. What do you mean by that? That you heard there was, there was Jamaican music, but you were influenced by American music. What do, what do you mean by that? We used to hear more American music than our own music. And for example, reggae music was not allowed to be played on Sundays because it was seen as rag music. Yeah. 
Yeah. Lower. Yes. Lower class. So we would hear more American songs being played on the radio than our own music. Of course, we knew about Bob Marley and the Wailers, the Heptones, Delroy, and a whole lot of nice Jamaican songs, which we loved. But we hear more American music then. And were you singing around the house growing up? Oh, every day. I sang in school, church, choir, everywhere. That's that's the only relief we had as kids. We couldn't go anywhere. So I have two other sisters, and mm. we would just sing and harmonize ourselves every day, every night. On like church songs? Church songs. Like what church songs were you singing? We used to sing... Um, Someday, some happy day, from sin, my soul set free. Then the tambourine is going, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's a revival. And were, did, were you good at it? Like, did people tell you you were good at singing right of, off the bat? I was. That Those days we were, we just loved to sing, but we had no vision of being any singer. We just loved to sing. And that's all I knew then. You knew you had a gift. I took it for granted. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean you took it for granted? I just sing. My sisters sing as well. Yeah. So I said, you know, so what? You know, I didn't know that these were special gifts from God. It was a God-given talent. So we just sang in church, school concerts, and that was it. Well, I got you to wear headphones, even though I know you hate wearing headphones. Yes, I do. <laughs> because I wanted to listen to some music with you. When I do that, let's listen to this. Wow. Wow. That's the first song I did. What is, what's the name of the song? No Time to Lose. By who? Carla Thomas. And why are we playing that for you? This is where I started. As I said earlier, we were inspired by American music. And I was influenced by all of these ladies, Aretha Franklin, Patti LaBelle, Carla Thomas, Dionne Warwick, Nancy Wilson. Those were, I embraced those singers. I loved everything. And Jamaicans loved all the songs they did. So when I went on stage for the first time and I performed that song, it was one of the most popular songs in Jamaica. Was that the one where the band kind of sabotaged you? Was that Same that one? song, yeah. Yeah, what happened there? Like, they, they, were, supposed to, oh, they were supposed to start playing music. Well, they, if you listen to this song the, in the first introduction, the guitar starts the song. And I'm there waiting as an 11-year-old girl, standing on stage for the first time, waiting on the guitar to start the song <laughs> so I can come in, and I hear nothing. So I, I looked around to see what's going on, and I saw everybody laughing. So I know that this is a real sabotage, as young as I was. Why? Why would they, why would they because want Because they had planned to sabotage me, because Philip James of the Blues Busters was the one who forced to make me go on that show. It was already planned, Byron Lee and the Dragoners. So they were just trying to show Philip that, 
you know, this is a waste of time. So, so hold on. So, so Byron Lee and the Dragoneers, it was their show. Yeah. Philip, Philip goes to you and says, okay, I want you to do the show. And he says to them, I want, I want Marcia to do the show. Yeah. And they're like, we don't want this 11 year old girl on our show. So they sabotage your performance. They, nobody knew me. They knew nothing about me. So they're saying, why are you, why are you going with this little girl? You know, my show is already planned. I can't take anybody else on it. And he said, you have to put this little girl on. So it was like forcing them to accept me to do a one song. But then that one song changes your entire life. Yes, because at the end of that one song, uh-huh. Byron Lee's manager, Ronnie Nasralla, he immediately wanted begging to manage me right there. You know, my father was with me because at 11 years, you know, I don't, not allowed to go by myself. Yeah. What did your father think of that? He was so overwhelmed. He was, you know, he couldn't believe what was happening so fast. It was okay, though, because I mentioned, you know, it, it wasn't, there, there, I don't know. Was it okay to be a musician? Was it okay to try to no, be No, a... my father saw that as so degraded. Uh-huh. He would want me as his daughter to be a nurse or a teacher or anything else other than being a singer. So did he take you to Studio One? Did he let you go? Did you have Yes, to... he he took me there with the guy who, you know, introduced me to go there. How did you talk him into it if he didn't want you to be a musician? No, because he was so proud of me uh, watching me on the stage. Yeah. And then the Linford said to him, you know, he wants to take me down to Studio One, which is Jamaica's Motown. So he walked with us down there as well and funny, he became so close and friendly with Mr. Dodd. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, so for people who don't know, I mean, um, Studio One, as you mentioned, the, the the Motown of Jamaica in so many ways, you know, the I mean, some incredible artists that were happening there at the time, right? That's where you graduate as a musician or right. an artist. I usually say that's where you graduate. If you didn't go through Studio One, then, you know, you didn't really have that experience. Because I met all the icons there, Bob Marley and the Whalers. Name them. They were right there. What was it? Was uh, Lee Scratch Perry there too? I saw Lee Scratch Perry washing down Mr. Dodd's car. I know, looking after his car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I don't know. It's all very like it's all very romantic to me because to me it's just stuff I read in books and I you know yes, and all that kind like of stuff. Yes, it's like a fairy tale story. What was it, what was it like in there in real life? Wow, it was just something that you know money could never buy. To walk in that studio and see all these great musicians, Jackie Me Too. Roland Alfonso. Don Drummond. One of the greatest trombonists. Oh my goodness. It was awesome. Were they nice to you? Very nice. Because those days is two track. The voice goes on with the rhythm. So you can't afford to make any mistake. Right. Back in those days, it wasn't like now where I could do on my phone, uh, record track after track exactly. after track. Exactly. Back then you had no. two tracks, one for the music, one for the voice. So, so <laughs> you had to right. nail it right away. Definitely. And you did. <laughs> I did. I didn't do any audition. I just walked in there. Sing the song, Jackie learned it, and then one take, and that's it. So can we listen to some more music? Yes. Okay, let's listen to this. (laughs) 
my first hit song, 1967. Feel like jumping. That's right. Feel like jumping. Lord, feel like shouting now. Feel like moving. Feel like grooving now. La 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 la. Big hit song for you, right? Big hit song written by Bob Andy and Jackie Me Too. What did that song do for you, the success of that song do for you? Well, that song put me on the market and then everyone started to know my name, started to know about me after that song. And then I had many other hit songs in the decade of the 60s following Feel Like Jumping. Was it overwhelming to have that kind of success at such a young age? Yes, it was. Well, no money came with it, but it was still nice. What, you do, you, what do you mean no money came with it? No one got paid. All when we go there like a nine to five job, we yeah. clock in early morning and we're there all day in the studio recording. No money. We would maybe get one patty for lunch. You know, Sister Rita, I met Sister Rita there. Rita Marley. Rita Marley. And um she was my friend immediately because this is a male dominated world. And she's a woman, so we became very close friends, and we would talk. And there's no pay for anyone, even if we do stage shows, there's no pay. Does that make you angry now? No, 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 no. Because I, when I hear them talk very badly of Mr. Dodd, I will still give him praise, because he gave me the opportunity, which was the greatest, and he gave everyone else the opportunity because I think he was really innocent then. I don't think he was even making anything much himself. But we all got the opportunity to express ourselves and to show our talent to the world. And eventually it pays off for every single one of us. I mean, you, you, you said just then that it was a male-dominated World. Yes, it is. I mean, the the and it it, it, it is now, and and I mean, and it's, we'll talk about that a little later. Maybe it's a little bit better for women artists now, but back then, especially. So, I read this quote from you when you were working with um, with Bob Andy, yeah. you know, a fellow legend just like yourself. Um, you guys had a duet. You had big hits in the UK. You did uh, a great version of Young Gifted in yes, Black, which I really yes. love. did the song called Pied Piper. That's right. Which I really loved. Hey, come on, baby. Follow me. I'm the Pied Piper. Can't you see? But I read this quote that you said, um, Bob Andy was everything a young girl needed to survive in a male-dominated business. Does that mean he, like, he, he looked after you? or he, he He was more experienced, more knowledgeable, and he could maneuver. He could handle himself. So because of his presence, I usually say that I think God wanted me for a purpose because had it not been for Bob Andy, a young girl in a male-dominated business and you're vulnerable, everyone has eyes on a young girl coming in the business. Even Bob Marley himself and Peter Tosh and Bonnie Whaler, there were three guys who would watch a young female coming in the business to see how she carries herself. J- judging you a little judging, bit? Judging, yes. So yeah. I didn't have any time for anyone else because Bob Andy and I became friend, close friends. 
and he would be everywhere I was. And the guys didn't like that. He was very protective. If I'm going into the country to perform, he's there. And the musicians were so angry. They didn't want him around because they weren't allowed or weren't able to make pass at me. I remember I performed in Clarendon one night, mm. way in some remote areas, the Scatterlights. Mm. And Bob Andy was there. And, you know, they were so upset that he was there that at the end of the performance, um, this is a, a young girl, mm. and they drove away and left us there with a guy who packed the instrument, Ikaman, myself, and Bob Andy. And you know what they said? They're only responsible for singer, not singer and boyfriend. And they left us, all three of us. Mm. We had to bum a ride. They call it bumming a ride. Mm -hmm. We had to bum a ride from there to get back into town. And I couldn't tell my father what happened. Mm. As a young woman in that industry at because that time. Because he would stop me from going to Studio One. Uh. And I didn't want to stop. It was a rough road coming up, you know, in a male-dominated business. So I'll forever say I'm thankful for Bob Andy. Um, you, you mentioned Bob, Bob Marley there. You did end up singing with him for a yeah. tour, touring with him for a, a yeah. number, a number of years. Yeah, I met him when I went there in 64. Yeah. But I had no vision, no idea that I would end up working with him. How, how, did, you, how, did, that, how did that happen? Well, we... I was doing some performances for a weekend, solo performances, because I started out as a solo artist. I never relinquished my solo career. Yeah. So when I did the performances, I invited Judy and Rita to come and do harmonies. And at the end of the performance, we had a little jam session on stage and the audience loved it Wh and said... What did you sing in the, in the little jam session? Sweet Inspiration song. They were mm. popular in Jamaica mm. and... Everybody loved mm. Sweet Inspirations. Incidentally, that's Whitney Houston's mother. Mm. Sissy Houston, yeah. Sissy Houston. Yeah. And they loved that group. So we did all of those songs. I need your sweet. All those songs were... Jamaica's favorite song. The audience loved it and encouraged us to form a group. And we said, why not? And I usually say that coming together as I3 in a group, it was ordained by the Almighty. Because at the same time, Bob Marley and his original Wheelers had a major fallout. Big fight too, right? Big breakup. Big, big. And exactly at the time of the fallout, the, the group was formed. And he immediately heard that we formed the group and we were doing a gospel show for the first time. And he called us in to do Natty Dread. Dread, Natty Dread now. Natty Dread. Straight to number one. And after the passing of his imperial majesty, he called us again to do Jalive. Jalive. Children, yeah. Jalive. 
and we ended up doing the entire Nat Dread album. And the rest is history. We became his three little birds. I mean, take take. Speaking of you, you you you're doing my job for me here. Take a listen. Wow, you're good. You're good. <laughs> yeah, you should be sitting here for God's sake. What am I doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for you though. This Bob. I'm waiting for you to come in. Right here, right. Here we yeah, go. Yeah. Beautiful. Three Little Birds from Bob Marley, the album yeah. Exodus, featuring my guest Marcia Griffiths on backing vocals. I hear he was tough in the studio, though. Yes. I hear he was tough on musicians, and I hear he was tough on singers. You know why? And... He thrived for perfection. Yeah. I have not known anyone up until this day taking the music so serious like Bob Marley. He loved it. He never cared about money, no money, no food. He just wanted this message and this music to go out there to the four corners of the earth, to the people. That's all he cared about. That was his life. He ne- this man, listen, I can't even find the adjective to describe huh? what I saw. Is that hard on you as a singer? You got to do take upon take upon take upon take? Yes. It had to be perfect. Uh. If we are performing on stage and he had ears like Stevie Wonder is another person I see with that kind of ears. Yeah. And if he hears one wrong note coming from our side, Uh. remember the next day we're going to be rehearsing that one song <laughs> for like three hours. I heard it's a regimental thing. I heard James Brown is is like that too. Yes. Yeah. These are people who love the music and they thrive for perfection. That's the first part of my conversation with the queen of reggae, Marcia Griffiths, coming up uh, later in the show. She's going to tell you a little bit about her biggest hit and how it inspired... Maybe the biggest wedding dance of all time. More with Marcia Griffiths coming up. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. All right. What's your man? I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. It's Bob Marley and Jammin'. I put that song on after uh, I did this interview you're going to hear today. I can't get over the amount of space in that recording. It's so beautiful and so restrained. And the voice you're hearing besides Bob Marley on it is Marcia Griffiths. Marcia Griffiths is the queen of reggae. And she was in Toronto recently, dropped by our studio for a chat about her, her music and her career. So Marcia's biggest song is this song called Electric Boogie. It's the 
biggest song pretty much ever by a female reggae singer. If you've ever done the electric slide, like at a wedding, you have Marcia to thank. So she talks a little bit about that, but also about how even though she's considered the queen of reggae and this incredibly important artist, she hasn't been compensated fairly. Here's the rest of my conversation with Marcia Griffiths. <laughs> you knew I was going to play this for you, didn't you? No. No? No. Ooh, it's that is uh, Electric Boogie by Marcia Griffiths, number one in Jamaica. Ends up inspiring the electric slide dance move, which is still done at like weddings, gatherings. It's the longest living song and dance. It's huge. And I heard a story I wanted to ask you about because we're in Toronto right That's now. That's right. This whole thing, for better or for worse, <laughs> wouldn't have happened without Toronto. This is where it all started. We came here to do a performance, I3, Judy, Rita, and myself. After Bob had passed, so. Yes. Yeah. And of course, it's a male dominated business, and the women are usually seen for their favors. Mm. They give us hard luck story, and we bite because we use our heart instead of using our head. And they know this about we, women. So we didn't get pay. Each of us got $700 Canadian dollars. That's, that was our pay. That was all you got for the gig you did here. Big sold out show. 700 They gave us a lot of stories. They didn't make any money as if that's our business. But anyway, we took the $700 we couldn't win. We couldn't fight it. So I came downtown. I think it's Young Street. Mm. And I was walking. I went in the store and I saw this rhythm box, like a keyboard. Nice little size. And I started playing around with it. And the man in the store came and he showed me a lot of features on this keyboard. Like a synthesizer? No, it's like a keyboard, but it has like a, over a hundred different sounds. Hawaiian, bossa nova, every beat and every sound. Okay, right, right, right. And I discovered this beat. It was going like poof, puff, poof, puff, poof. And then the piano now had a sound called the repeater that if you play the original song, mm. you'll hear the repeater sound in it. That's from the the, kit, the rhythm box I bought. In Toronto? Yes, wow. right here in Toronto. Wow. I took it home to Jamaica. Uh. And because Bonnie Whaler and I go way back, and he used to visit me regularly, and he's a very good songwriter and musician, I showed him the box. I said, Bonnie, come and look at this box. And I showed him one particular beat that I loved. So he combined the beat with the piano and put some hand claps matching hand claps I got to groove, groove, groove. that gave it a boost and he took it to Portland came back the following day with the song so we went straight in it was so spontaneous we didn't sleep on it we went straight in the studio and guess what 
he took 11 different keyboard parts from the one rhythm box that I bought right here in Toronto <laughs> and added it to the song Electric Boogie. How did you find that the electric slide started happening? When did you find that out, that people were doing... 1989. I was on tour in 89, Sunsplash tour, on the West Coast, when I got the call that this song just took off with a dance. So by the time the tour got to Washington, D.C., I was forced to learn the dance and perform it on stage. Who did the dance? Like, where did the dance come from? Wow. It was a group of guys in Washington, D.C. who created this dance. Did you ever meet them? Sure. Had that? Because we had regular electric slide day in D.C. And we're talking about 100,000. I stood on stage and watched 100,000 people doing the electric slide. It was like a wave. Every, everything was just going like that. It was something to behold. Is that a, is that a point of pride? Is that are you proud of that? Well, I'd be I'd feel better if I was able to make some money yeah. from it, you yeah. know. But unfortunately, Bonnie Whaler claimed a hundred percent from the song. And whatever I made from that song is from performances. And thanks to Chris Blackwell, who thought it was so unfair that nothing was given to me. So I eventually, in the end, got some performance royalties. But I didn't get what was due. No publishing? Nothing at all. Nothing. And it's from my music that the song was written. That's horrible. Very. How do you... I I think it's unfair yeah and i think it's selfish yeah and greed yeah you know because there's enough there for everyone so it's just greed what do you what do you do then how do you you know well i i went in the studio and with the miami sound machine mm. and uh, we re-recorded the song with Chris Blackwell's advice mm-hmm. because I originally I was looking for Bonnie Whaler to do the video I heard with story. me. Yeah, yeah. Because Bonnie has a major part in that song where he does a rap. And if I was gonna do a video with the original song, it would be Bonnie and myself. Mm. But while I was searching for Bonnie, he was busy mm. in the studio recording over the song for himself. Doing his own version his of the song without version, you. Without me. So when I finally found him, he had already done the song and was now doing the video <laughs> with some dancers. I cannot find the words to tell you how bad I felt. But... Good over evil, I say, because his version didn't do anything, even though I took it personally myself and was giving it to all radio stations. Mm. But they didn't know that version and they didn't love that version. Mm. So it didn't work out for him. And you went in and did your own version. Yeah. And that blew up. It's the same thing, but, you know, I just record it over. 
It's it's um I, I really appreciate you talking to me about that. And it's it's not lost on me that I mean six sixty years in the in the business and you're still I mean, you were talking you and I were talking before the we turned the microphones on and you were I was like, How's it going? You were like, I've been on the road, I've been touring. Well, this shows me and I have to say this before I close out, uh-huh. it shows me that when God says yes, no one says no. And if it says many are called, but few are chosen. And I honestly believe that God chose me as a missionary on a mission doing God's work. And that's what keeps you on the road. That's what keeps you yes. going. It's a sense of... Um... Because I would not have lasted had it not been for God who has preserved me all these years. And of course, thanks to the fans who have supported me. I really appreciate you coming in. Nice to talk to you. Yes, it it was a pleasure. I'd like to kiss you once more Just to hold you once more I'd like to find out for sure If you must leave me now My darling, tell me, tell That's beautiful music and, and a great way to be introduced to some of this music if you don't know it. From her 1978 album, Naturally, that's Marcia Griffiths, also known as the Queen of Reggae, with a song called Tell Me Now. I remember uh, she stuck around for, I don't know, maybe like another 25, 30 minutes afterwards. We had a grand old chat. I just absolutely loved talking to her. Uh, can I shout out, uh, I didn't get a chance to do this on the radio show. I want to shout out our good friend and, and Canadian reggae legend, Jay Douglas, who helped hook us up with Marcia when she came in. Thank you so much, Jay. Uh, and it was nice to get to spend time with two legends of reggae, Marcia Griffiths and, and Jay Douglas. I want to give you a heads up um, that the other episode we have up today is um, a pretty fun one. Um, I love the way that Afi Yorbanen or, or Bahamas thinks about music. You know, I think like a lot of musicians, when you play guitar, he's a really great guitar player. When you start out, you are trying to play perfectly. You're trying to play as many notes as you can, as perfectly as you can, and as you get more mature as a musician, in my opinion, perfection becomes a little less important. So, ostensibly, mine and Bahamas' conversation is about country music and his sort of pivot to country music on this new record, but it, it becomes this conversation about whether perfection is something worth striving for. And it reminded me a little bit of that conversation with Marcy Griffiths about Bob Marley. Anyway, go check that out wherever you got this conversation on your podcast feed. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.